We all have a conscience, but what is it, and where does it come from? There's a fascinating modern history to this question, which we'll dive into after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. I'm guessing most of you listening have been taught that when you have to make a moral decision, one of the best things to do is to follow your conscience. The idea of a conscience has a long history, especially in the Christian tradition, but at the same time, it often draws on very modern ideas of individuality and psychology, especially how it's commonly used in our culture. Today, hot issues from war to sexual ethics are laden with conscience language. And more broadly, our culture continues to valorize those who do follow their individual conscience over outside authorities. In this episode, I have the pleasure to enter into a conversation about individual conscience with a fellow historian, Peter Chaika. Pete is a historian of American Catholicism and a practicing Catholic himself. He brings a fresh perspective on the topic of individual conscience, especially in his book from last year titled Follow Your Conscience, The Catholic Church and the Spirit of the Sixties. In this conversation, we explore the history of Christian thinking about the conscience and the parallels and incongruities in the Catholic and Protestant perspectives. Pete is Assistant Teaching Professor and Director of Undergraduate Studies in the Department of American Studies at the University of Notre Dame. His research focuses on American Catholicism, the history of ideas, and the history of sexuality, and you can check out his book in the show notes. Please enjoy this Upwards Conversation with Pete Chaika. Um, so yeah, let's just start um, by getting a little sense of who you are. What brought you to, well, first, where'd you grow up? But what, what then brought you to the study of Catholic history? Yeah, I grew up in uh, like near Akron, Ohio, uh, just north of it in a suburb. But basically, I am a product of Catholic institutions my entire life. Even now, I've never not been at a Catholic institution. So I think that's a big context for why I study American Catholic history. But I didn't think about it as a historical object of study really till the middle of undergraduate um, at the University of Dayton, where I started reading some Catholic social teaching and taking classes on Catholic political theory. And I just honestly found it to be a a shockingly weird worldview. Um, Like, even if I was in it, I found it to be a weird, weird and exciting worldview where it was kind of a critique of capitalism, but also a critique of socialism. I found that really intriguing. So I started reading more and then I was always doing history. I was never like really interested in theology or political theory beyond just reading it. So but I was always interested in the archive and empirical work. So it was kind of in the middle of grad school in Marquette University. I was doing a master's that I discovered like Catholic historiography and the archive there. And ever since then, I've just kind of been in love with um, trying to understand who Catholics are in time and what they're about, especially their thinking and how their thinking shapes American life and how they're shaped by American life. But I would say the, the immediate context is like being a Catholic, but also then discovering this Catholic intellectual world, which is always there, but kind of hidden. Uh, I imagine a lot of Protestant thinkers would have a similar trajectory when they started reading 
certain types of theology in undergrad, you know, right. that would reconnect you to your roots. Like, and I kind of was like, I wouldn't say it was a reconversion or a rebirth, but it was more like um, after the intellectual angle came into focus, my, my faith life also became really important to me in a way it wasn't before. Yeah. And that, I actually have a very similar story from the evangelical Protestant side. I, I think it's it, a very common narrative. Yeah. 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 Interesting. You, you mentioned Marquette. So that's, uh, you have a little, um, yep. uh, Wisconsin experience, I guess. Um, any, any particular fond memories of Wisconsin? Uh, I used to buy $10 tickets to the Bucks games when I was there. Um, I don't think you can get those anymore no. with Giannis, uh, now being the ultra superstar that he is. I was like, delighted to see the Bucks win. Um, but mostly I had a, I had a great two years there and made some good friends with some good restaurants, but also like went to the Archdiocese of Milwaukee's archives mm. numerous times for research along the drive, like on the sort of, you know, you cross a bridge and you're next to the next to the lake. It's a beautiful area. Yeah. Um, and you really get a sense of like a Catholic culture, an urban Catholic culture downtown. And I was studying that um, my first like master's essay was on Catholics and car culture in Milwaukee. Um, and then I wrote an essay on um, a place called Holy Hill, which is about yeah. 35 minutes north of, of of Milwaukee, which was a German Catholic shrine that was built in the middle of the 19th century. Um, but yeah, it was a discovery of like a certain Catholic culture there. And I definitely didn't go as far north as I should have in Wisconsin. I stayed, no. I only, I, so yeah, but I did get, I do have a taste of Wisconsin in my history. So yeah. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, Holy Hill is like a very picturesque, there's postcards galore of, of Holy Hill um, yeah. in, the, in the Madison area. Um, you mentioned that you've, you're sort of a lifelong Catholic. Did you ever think of going into the priesthood or was that never sort of anything you, know, you were interested in? I had like six months where I was thinking about it and then I met my now wife. Uh, so that ended pretty quickly <laughs> and it wasn't, I wasn't really all that serious about it. Um, but no, I think I've encountered a lot of really good priests, um, my own intellectual development. My master's advisor was a priest named Stephen Novella. Um, I had an undergraduate mentor who was a political theorist, who was a priest, and um, that had a big effect on me. But I always kind of was more in love with the Catholic intellectual life of the layperson at the university. For whatever reason, that was kind of my sort of vocation um, within this. But I did think about it for a little bit, and I'm now writing a lot about the clergy abuse crisis. So that's a different type type of thing. But the priesthood, I think, is like really something that's just coming into focus that we're studying. And my book kind of reflects on that as well, um, about the importance of priests as fighters for individual freedom. But yeah, it's, I think anyone who starts taking their Catholicism seriously does have a moment where they think about that, but not everybody like goes through with it, you know? So yeah, it's hard. Yeah. It's very hard. So well, we, we need the, the lay people as well, right? We need the people at, you know, uh, in the, in the departments at places like Notre Dame. So, uh, yeah, it makes sense. Did, I think, uh, yep. Yeah. Sorry, um, uh, you know, you, you write a lot about the, uh, individual conscience, that particular topic. Is there any story to why that's where you landed in sort of the broader Catholic intellectual yeah. history world? I was looking, I don't, I mean, it really comes, I mean, it's, I just noticed all these people writing about how Catholics were talking about it a lot and how it had not been explained. I didn't find anything explaining that. So I know John McGreevy in his book, Catholicism, American Freedom, which had a huge impact on me. I first read that as an undergrad, reread it again as a grad student twice. Um, and my book is kind of in conversation with that book in many ways. Uh, you know, it mentions on one page that Catholics were talking about conscience a lot in response to war. Um, and I found that interesting, but it also cropped up across all sorts of other literature. So it became a problem that I wanted to figure out intellectually. Why are they talking about this so frequently? What does it mean to them? And 
I, that also kind of connects to my own interests. I think trying to figure out in the Catholic intellectual life, the relationship between the subjective individual and the broader tradition. I still have a big question about that for my, as a believer myself. We have our own little worlds we live in, our own subjectivities. How does that connect to these deeper truths? And I think the, that normative question coming together with that historical question was kind of what hooked me on it. Yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, so I let's start talking about this uh, really nebulous or can be nebulous concept of a conscience. I think for most listeners, for most Americans, there's a default assumption that there is something called an individual conscience that, um, well, I wouldn't want to even guess on uh, the diversity of ways people would actually <laughs> yeah. define that. And that's part of what um, your research shows. And we'll be talking a bit, um, drawing from Pete's book called Follow Your Conscience, The Catholic Church and the Spirit of the 60s. And there'll be a link to that in the show notes. Um, but I thought one way to do this is to, as we try to like land on a definition of conscience, particularly for Catholics, um, which of course there's there's a range of views um, as as you go into, but maybe setting up a few different ways, maybe common assumptions about what a conscience is, and then letting you respond to them, knowing yeah. that you have a very nuanced and um, uh, historically grounded understanding of what a conscience is. But I I think one, yeah. and this is coming out of probably my own context too, as a evangelical growing up, um, really seeing conscience as rooted in Protestant Christianity and particularly, you know, famous quotes by people like Martin Luther saying, my conscience is captive to the word of God. And that being sort of the way he was situating himself as morally opposed to the Catholic church um, in the 16th century. Um, so, you know, I know you talk about this in your book and I'd love you to just uh, talk about it now. What, what are we missing when we think, or when we assume that the conscience is a distinctly Protestant concept? Yeah. It's a great question. I mean, as you already alluded to, right, it means something about the individual who can stand up against the system. That's something very broadly it means, especially in Protestant teaching. I think that's really important. And the Catholic concept still retains a lot of that. Um, it can also mean broadly freedom of religion, right? I have a freedom of conscience, which William Penn defined it this way, like a freedom to practice your religion. Um, of course, Penn was not saying the right religion is not a non-Catholic one, right? So that's an interesting right. thing about early modern theory we know a lot about. I think conscience can also just mean a broad assertion of your own moral values. That's where it gets really nebulous, right? I'm following my conscience, um, but all of them kind of come together to say what's particular to the individual's conviction, and but also how the individual's convictions connect to something larger for Luther, it was the word of God, right? So that's okay. what really captured his conscience. It was not the institution. Um, so that's all very important. And I think what I try to do is say there's an idea about American history that this begins with Protestants, which is true, right, in a lot of ways for our own story. And Hutchinson uh, standing up against John Winthrop, um, uh, you know, Penn with this and Hutchinson. Hutchinson in particular is a theorist of conscience who, who really matters. Um but also Roger Williams. Roger Williams is a key theorist of conscience as well, right? And Penn too. Um, all of these, are, there's an early movement to say this is freedom of conscience because it was about a Reformation idea of escaping Catholic authority, going back against Catholic authority. So right. I agree with that. If you start the narrative in 1630 in Boston, that makes sense. For my own part, 20th century Catholics were dipping back to Thomas Aquinas, mm. right? Um, as the original theorist of conscience who was writing intensely about it in the 1230s, 1240s, 1250s. So what I try to do is actually say there's this intellectual from the medieval world who supplies this modern subjectivity um, through the late through the late 19th and 20th centuries. 
um, when the Catholics are fighting against modernity. But um, Catholics kind of enter into the stream of conscience discourse intensely in the 20th century, which was previously a Protestant secular discourse. And I think that's that's kind of where it begins and where it's it's important for us as, as American historians to realize that there's a kind of a Catholic genealogy as well to certain ideas of subjectivity. If we want to understand how the 20th century works, especially with conscription against war and also fights against abortion laws. Right. So Catholics are particularly putting their subjective arguments there. But they're behaving in, in ways that look American to us in terms of like the individual standing up against the system. So, yeah. Yeah. And just just to um, be clear, when you're talking about like subjectivity or subjective arguments, you're is that sort of a, a synonym for con for individual conscience or the sense that like whatever I'm um, whatever my moral compass is inside myself is sort of what I need to follow or what's sort of dictating right and wrong. That's that's right. For Catholics. The word subjectivity is that it imagines that there's also an objectivity. So it imagines that there's an objective truth that is then connecting with the subjective truth, at least on one level. However, the subjectivity can become confident enough to go out on its own, right? And so there's a lot of Catholic theory that says, you know, if you, you have to follow your conscience, right? Moral theologians are constantly saying that. The Protestant critique was that Catholics don't have consciences, that they just right. follow the, the, like, the rule of the dictates of the authority. But if you look in Catholic thought, there's a really prof profound emphasis even dating back to Aquinas, even up to the most conservative moral theologians of the 30s and 40s saying, actually, Catholic theory says you have to follow, you know, when you believe something very truly that is true and you th it's in your mind is true and your conscience is true, you have, you have a moral obligation to follow that. In fact, if you break that, it's a sin against the church. So it's a very intense position. And once you kind of uncover it and try to deal with it, um, it's an issue. It's not just an issue for Protestants. It's also an issue for like conser conservative Catholic leaders who want to try to control that. Right. So that's something we can talk about later. But um, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's where a lot of the messiness comes in is you have this sort of external law or, yep. or external objectivity, and then your internal subjectivity. And, you know, sometimes those align, and that's great, but often they don't. And um, that's where it gets messy. I also think with with Luther, you know, up until the moment, uh, or he said the my, my conscience is captive, and even after that, he was a Catholic, right? So I mean, in some sense, you have to root, where did he get those ideas? And, yeah. and that's where you got to keep going back and back. Um, yeah. Okay, so I mean, that's one maybe assumption some people have is that individual conscience is a uniquely Protestant um, understanding. That's not true. Another sort of assumption that I probably had up until some point in my education was that conscience is, um, or individual conscience, is mostly like an Enlightenment secular creation that, um, to frankly invoke another devout Catholic, Rene Descartes, uh, you know, said um, uh, every, every person is sort of has the light of reason in them or something like that, and that's what a conscience is. And, um, and so that would root this conscience idea sort of, yeah, Christians have it, but really the, the advancement on conscience thinking and philosophy was done by a more secular intellectual tradition. And yeah. how, how would you respond to that? Yeah, that's an important part of the genealogy of American intellectual life, too, as you know, for sure. And um, I didn't write about Descartes, but I wrote about Kant and, you know, his dict his basically saying, um, you know, enlightenment is a dare to know. And it's a get you don't need to rely on your authorities, particularly priests. Kant was saying, don't rely on your priests. Right. And that's part of this modern secular thing is like, you can't rely on external authorities like priests. Um, but I think there's also a long line of this you can trace that influences like John Dewey, John Rawls, right. all sorts of other like intellectuals up through the 20th century who basically say, you know, the individual has to decide for themselves. 
in their subjectivity what's true and come to terms with that rather than rely on some external authority. Um, and this is where you see John McGreevy's influence, I think, on my book is that's kind of his his discourse between Catholicism and liberalism is back and forth on exactly that thing. Um, but I think, too, it's like that that misses Aquinas and that misses all of the just war theorists who were theorizing conscience, like theorizing conscience rights after the Reformation and the Jesuit tradition. Um, it misses a guy named Alphonsus Liguri, who was a profound theorist of conscience, um, who is an Enlightenment thinker from the Italian tradition. Mm. Um there's an entire Catholic strand of con- of conscience thought alongside this. So the idea from Protestant secular thinkers that Catholics don't have consciences doesn't doesn't take into account how how deeply committed Catholic thought is to like forming a subjectivity properly, but also for following a subjectivity. And so I would say like American history, we can understand more of it and have a richer discourse if we let Catholics talk to us on some of these terms. That's kind of yeah. what my book was trying to say is that to understand resistance to the Vietnam War in particular and debates about contraception, we have to understand that Catholics have a profound um, and an influential theological system. And I think uh, the the secular thing can, can kind of cover that up, you know? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it, and actually, but the other thing I would say, it's not always completely wrong, okay? So there is a theory in Catholic thought too that says, you know, ca- ca- conscience is bound to follow a just and clear law given by the church or the state. So there is this idea that like conscience is bound to follow the right type of authority. So it's not completely wrong. And this is the thing that, um. Uh, what's his name? Kind of Paul Blanchard latches mm-hmm. on to that in his analyses. He misses the li- the emancipatory part. He gets the conservative part right. So that's where it's a little bit tricky. And um, and even in the Catholic Church itself, conservative Catholic authorities are saying, "Well, well, we never said you could really follow your conscience." Okay, like you have to like form it properly to follow the church. So there's this tricky discourse. But right. the last thing I'll say here is this: is that um, for the intellectual historian, the historian of ideas, it's a combustible idea. It's full of tensions and paradoxes. That's how you have to understand its history is that when you take it apart, it starts fracturing and starts pulling people in different directions. And so I think that's the historian's touch, not the, the theologians. Yeah, yeah. And you, your research definitely shows that combustible nature. One thing, just uh, just a question just popped into my mind about um, you listing sort of this broader, longer Catholic tradition that includes, you know, French and Italian and probably German and then American thinkers, they're all writing in different languages. Um, what within the Catholic tradition, like, is there, are they all writing in Latin? I don't think that's the case, but mm-hmm. uh, how are they all, re- are they all reading each other? Is, is there, you know, are American theorists of the conscience in the 1930s and 40s, are they reading Italian and French thinkers? Is that what's going on? Or is there a different way that ideas are being transmitted? Great question. I mean, I think they would have read Aquinas in the original Latin and translated that into English a lot between like 1880 and 1960 because the popes at that time put a huge emphasis on on reading Aquinas. So it would have started out with Latin and translated into English um, for sure. I think that's basically where it starts. It relies upon that. And then there's basically all sorts of works in French, Dutch, German getting translated into English in the 60s and 70s about conscience. So there's this book called the Dutch Catechism. The Dutch go really the Dutch Catholic story is like they just like go totally liberal very quickly. Mm. But as they're doing that, they write this thing called the Dutch Catechism, which was translated in English in 67. And it has a really strong section on, on conscience, like mm. all catechisms do. But this one was translated. So there was a ton of translation on the 60s and 70s. Bernard Herring is a huge um, German moral theologian um, and also works in Italian. We're getting translated in English on conscience. So. There's an interesting translation there probably like across these languages of what this word means for sure. So but it's basically like there's a lot of translating into English going on across like the the modern world um, at the same in, in the same way, too. It's like I think 
early modern thinkers who were writing about just war were also writing about this in like Spanish and other things like that. So, yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting. I mean, that's an, that's an interesting part of intellectual history that often goes unremarked or, or, or is just assumed is the translation work. So you mm -hmm. see, you know, even in, in American Protestant circles, you know, Carl, Carl Barth, um, really makes a splash in the fifties, uh, at least in certain circles, in part because you're getting the first, um, translations of his work that was sitting in German, uh, before that's that. And, and, you know, that's, it's anyway, it, some of the timing questions can often be decoded by when their work's being translated into language that a lot of scholars can, you know, quickly, yeah. easily digest, um, as yep. opposed to more specialized languages. Yep. So, um, and the Catholic church, I mean, what, what, what more could you, uh, want for a story about translation than a globe-spanning institution yep. like the Catholic Church. Um, and with, you get it in basically yeah. like, you get it in complex treaties of moral theology, but your basic catechism, a third grader would read, would get a distilled version of this. And you, as mm -hmm. a high school uh, learner, you would read it again. You should follow your conscience in these situations. You should form it this way. There's a true conscience, a false conscience. And then if you went to a Catholic college before Vatican II, you were made to memorize it again, right? Mm -hmm. So um, grade school, high school, college, and then if you go to seminary as a priest, you learn it way more because you're, you're doing both confession. Confession has a huge relationship to conscience. So and that that kind of wraps back to your Protestant question, because Paul Tillich, all of the people will say, like, consciences get crushed in confessionals. And that's not like actually in the Catholic tradition, the conscience gets formed and shaped in the confessional. And the confessor is also not really allowed to tell you not to follow your conscience. So even then. Um, the rules of subjectivity stand even in this like darkened booth on the side of these ethnic parishes, right? That so terrified Protestants for and terrified Catholics still today. Um, so yeah, I, but I think like that's that's um, the translation also percolated or kind of um, uh, I, sort of there's a trickling down effect even to like to the grade school level in a basic catechism. Yeah, and that's where you see broader influence, right, on the sort of lay level. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, okay, so we've sort of talked through. The idea of an individual conscience isn't necessarily Protestant. It's not necessarily Enlightenment or modern um, construct. Um, I think maybe one last sort of assumption people might have is that there's a particular politics or mm -hmm. um, an obvious logical politics to invoking your conscience. It might be more individualistic, libertarian, um, anti-government. I don't know. There's a lot of ways you could you could frame it. Mm -hmm. And um, I also think of the ways that at least the surface level idea of a conscience is invoked in commercials to, you know, anyway, there's a lot of ways you can frame conscience. And I think this is, you know, you've done such interesting work looking at all the different types of issues and debates where people are invoking conscience and not just in a, in an offhanded way, but really rooting their um, politics and their uh, arguments in the idea of a conscience and coming out on all different sides of different issues. So um, you talk about issues of war and military service. You talk about issues of um, sexual ethics and access to things like contraception. Um, where do you want to go with that? What, what, what's, the, what's the way that you really think about the politics of conscience and how it sort of branches into all these different uh, permutations? Yeah. I was thinking about this question a lot lately. Um, there was a blog that I read about, you know, which laid out the Catholic theory of conscience to not take the vaccine for COVID. Mm -hmm. And the argument was theologically correct, as far as I could tell. I'm not a theologian, but it was the same type of argument for the things I was studying. And so that's interesting uh, because it can, it, you're right, it can go so many different ways. And 
there is here like there, sometimes I think too with the theology of conscience, I'll say this and then backtrack slightly. A, a sense of like the moral individual separating from an unjust society, which is problematic in a lot of ways, right? We mm-hmm. could be very skeptical about that. Um, and that also comes with some serious political problems for citizenship. Like what are our obligations as citizens? Um, and I'll come back to that question in a second. But yeah, the politics that I was was formed around for me have a lot to do with two things, really. First is like the growth of the military industrial state since like 1914, but particularly around 1930, to the mid 1960s, right? Big states that have conscription, um, states that use weapons that do not discriminate against civilians. So Catholics start to theorize conscience rights more and more in the 30s and 40s in response to totalitarianism, conscription, and other things. And that makes sense because they were also theorizing human rights a lot more at that time as well. So, and then that kind of lays the groundwork for the draft of the Vietnam War, which was like theorized right. as an unjust war by many people. So that's one thing is the growth of this huge state. And maybe that's to your libertarian point, right? But for them, it's more of like a moral critique of what the state's asking you to do with your subjectivity, right? Mm -hmm. So, and the second thing is, is a sexual politics in the church itself, which kind of culminated in Humane Vitae, which said, uh, which placed a ban on artificial contraception. Um, For me, it was this convergence of sex and war over the course of the 20th century, which I think is a 20th century dilemma. Probably there are obviously that that crops up in a lot of other places, but in the same space in the 60s, huge debate about the Vietnam War and a big debate about sexuality taking place alongside one another. And that kind of that then fed into some other debates later. Right. Um, But it has to do. I think the last thing I would say, it has to do with the politics in which the law tries to make an individual do something and the individual objects to that law. So like in the conscription part, the state says we can send you to war. And then Catholics would push back and say, I have to follow my conscience, not the law. Um, and they say the law is unjust. The law is, um, the law is unreasonable. Therefore, in Catholic teaching, which is correct, going back to this COVID vaccine example, uh, because I think the law is unjust, I therefore have to follow my conscience. That's true. Catholic teaching doesn't spell out what can happen to you after that, right? Mm-hmm. You can still be put in prison. You can still be prosecuted. And they were. But they theorized this nonstop over the course of the Vietnam War. It's lay people in their draft documents. It's their priests. It's um, it's Catholics who are lobbying, um, like uh, lobbying the state to uh, in Supreme Court cases. As I talk about in chapter chapter six, right, or chapter five, chapter six. Um, and yeah, and so at the same time, it's this debate about contraception too, in which the church says, okay, you cannot use contraception, and lay people are saying, my own subjective world says that I need to do this, therefore I have to follow my conscience, which again is a correct reading of the tradition. But moral theologians on the conservative side would say, no, the law is just and clear. You have to follow it. So the conscious thing doesn't come in here. So I think it was this this, uh, this unique 20th century moment of intersections of sex and war that really propel yeah. it as a discourse. That's what that's kind of if I, as I step back and said to myself in American history, these things are intimately connected. Right. A debate about sex and war. And I think that that's what I was trying to say about the 60s. Like and I teach a class in the 60s. So I say this in class, too, is about. Um, debates about our, our bodies and war and sex like are really what's propelling a massive intellectual shift. Yeah, and that's interesting. And th- that's connecting two you know, things that I don't think most people connect, even historians. That's usually not the, the two. You, you hear sort of guns and butter type uh, framings of something like the Vietnam War, much more about sort of maybe economics and social welfare and warfare, but thinking about sexuality and war um, as two sides of, a, of an intellectual revolution or cultural revolution. Um, that's really interesting. Um, you know, part of, um, and by the way, as you were describing these debates within the Catholic tradition, I couldn't help but think of 
um, similar but differently structured debates within the Protestant world mm -hmm. that you know invoke something like sola scriptura, and and allow people to sort of root um, arguments that that are that seem entirely consistent within the tradition, at least within certain hermeneutical traditions, and yet arrive at different conclusions and then you're sort of left wondering what to do next um yeah. how do you uh, control that you know how do you control right. christianity it's a radical idea so same yeah exactly how do you, you exactly how do you if you let people think for themselves what what's the next step you know yeah right right and there i guess there might be an assumption if you're outside the catholic world that there is a little more uh, and there probably is a little more structure to those arguments and mm -hmm. there is a ultimately there is a hierarchy that you appeal to but i i, I mean i gathered this from from your book you can correct me if i'm wrong but that um in uh in reality or, or in lived experience it is it is a very fluid and um vigorous conversation argument debate that um maybe if you pulled out the particulars you actually couldn't tell a big difference between a bunch of protestants and a bunch of catholics arguing about this stuff it's yeah. it's as uh heated and emotional and invested in um as maybe more familiar um protestant debates around between mainline and fundamentalist or, or okay. sort of other camps that's fascinating i think i think that's right it's a very it's a very vigorous debate that's still raging in many ways, uh, Pope Francis is more on the follow your conscience side, and he takes a lot of flack from conservative theologians for that. Um, Benedict the Sixteenth was more on the law side, as you can imagine, yeah. and he got a lot of flack from the moral theologians on the left for that. And I do see it as an un unending sort of churning theological debate that there really is no end to. Um, and maybe that's what Christianity is. Maybe as Christians, we're called to continue to have these conversations and try to try to figure out like what are again. I think it goes back. We all live in these our own little worlds. We read our things. But there's also this objective tradition. I think there is a structure in which it happens. But yes, it's a vigorous debate full of all sorts of people arguing with each other all the time um, about a wide range of things. And the debate about contraception was a group of priests against an archbishop, right? So mm -hmm. it was a, not – and the lay they thought they had the backing of the lay people. And that's one of the interesting moments of the book is when I thought and I read it and I look back and I was like, it's actually about priests standing up to authority figures – and so these these priests from Washington D.C. right they're they're operating in similar similar things to like Protestant reformers right um, but they're doing it against their own church and I, but I yeah. think that's implicit within Catholic structures right yeah. if you and that's implicit within Christian structures like we're gonna have a long conversation about what it means to be Christian and that's a particularly difficult conversation around sexuality and contraception for the Catholic Church because um, there's so many things involved for the hierarchy it's like we need to be consistent on saying no contraception to make our life ethic work. But for lay people, it's like, especially lay women, making us have more babies is really problematic to our house, our marriage and our lives. So it's very, yeah, yeah it's very complicated. Well, yeah. And, and on that life ethic. So this is something particularly in at Upper House and um, and just in my own uh, networks, uh, relationships. That's one of the things that's held up that, at least in my circles, is very much admired in the Catholic tradition is this mm. life ethic from, you know, cradle to grave, basically, and, and pro-life in all instances or something is, is how it's said. How crucial is the individual conscience framework to that life ethic? Or, or is that is that yeah. crucial? Or is that sort of um, sometimes you find that sometimes you don't yeah. um, in the in the Catholic uh, ethics? I think it's crucial in one way for major in one way. Like, so goes back to this military industrial complex, like in the thirties and forties, Catholic men were being asked to drop bombs on civilians in planes and theologians began to reckon with this as a moral problem to have a full life ethic. You have to have people who will not become part of systems that destroy innocent life. 
Hmm. And the original dilemma was in war. And this is something I stress over and over again, right? For the 40s to the 70s, it was not so much a debate about abortion. I recognize the importance of Daniel Williams' book on this. But I think for me, the real pro-life debate is the debate about war. And and so um, even up to massacres in the Vietnam War, to, to have a pro-life ethic, you have to have individuals who are willing to stand up to that system. So that's a huge part of it. And that then moves to the abortion debate after 73, conscience clauses, allowing doctors and nurses to exempt themselves from, from certain certain procedures. So I think conscience is right central to it, right? Yeah. It's absolutely central to the life ethic um, because it the life ethic requires individuals to not become part of these systems of death and modernity. Uh, but there's a huge difference between war and abortion uh, with having to do reproductive politics and equality. But the analogy is still there for falling conscience. I think it's absolutely right. massive. And it's also for me, I don't, I'm not celebratory about that ethic or I don't I'm not whiggish about it. It's like an end of his I don't end of history thing. You know, I don't <laughs> I think it's an odd again. I think it's part of it is um, created, sifted, and it's made to look more solid than it actually is. Um, but it's it conscience is a huge part of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah that that's great. That that makes a lot of sense. Um, OK, w- one last question before um, we jump into just a few uh, topics related to teaching and um, and sort of takeaways on this. Um, there, there's a fascinating chapter where you talk about psychology in the 1960s and 70s and sort of this way that psychological language that is rooted more in, you might call it secular academic discourse, or I think you call it even sort of there's a, uh, a Jewish intellectual tradition around psychology as well, that those really come to shape uh, Catholic thinking on individual conscience. And I wanted to just pull, broaden that out a bit to think about um, how much of the story you're telling is uniquely Catholic or uniquely religious and how much of it is um, sort of forces outside of, of the Catholic tradition that are, you know, shaping um, Catholic discussions and theology. And I, I just use as a as, as an analogy, um, debates within the evangelical history world around how much of what evangelicalism is today and has been is really about a certain American cultural set of values and how much is, is you know, distinctly theological or, um, or, or certain, you know, isms, pietism or uh, Reformation theology or something like that, um, and I think there's a there's a lot of debate about that right now. I think the the pendulum has swung toward really seeing uh, evangelicalism as a version of uh, American culture, of Christian nationalism, other things. I wonder how you think about that with your story in Catholics in the 20th century. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, it's the perennial question of like assimilation against right maintaining an outsider status. I think the psychology chapter was interesting. It surprised me. I think what I tried to argue there is that, you know, they're still using Aquinas, uh, his main theories, but they're putting a psychological spin on it. They start reading Freud. Um, they start reading Eric Fromm. Uh, they start reading all sorts of other things, but they kind of graft that onto their own sort of intellectual um, training as priests. And I found that to be fascinating. They also use that stuff against their own church at times, right? They call the church mm. like a superego church. Um, Freud's <laughs> idea of the superego is like a thing that if you break from your communal traditions, it kind of puts pain inside of you. It's a control mechanism, right? Mm-hmm. Catholics are at loggerheads with that idea, but they're also like we're attracted to it as well. Um, but it was also Vatican II. They started reading new uh, you know, Jewish sources. They became less anti-Semitic. They were previously very, they are still, they were very previously very anti-Semitic. Um, so they didn't read Freud for a lot of, like Fulton mm-hmm. Sheen didn't like Freud. But in the 60s, they started going back and saying, actually, psychology is a lot to teach us about the individual conscience and for good reasons. And then they also read a third Jewish thinker named Lawrence Kohlberg, 
um, who's really important for like developmental thought. It was he taught at Harvard for many years. Um, but he, you know, Kohlberg is is, is a religious. Uh, um, let's see, he he loves John Dewey and John Rawls. So mm. like, he doesn't love Thomas Aquinas. So right, there's a lot of things secular, that can do to like yeah. synthesize his work with there. Um, but so I think that's an interesting question. How how much do they fold themselves into modernity on this? I think they're do, they're trying to maintain both as best they can. They want to stay like and, and maintain the importance of conscience in tradition, but they also want to use this language of development, formation. They want to use Freudian language. They want to use um, Fromm's idea of like the authentic conscience. Um, and I think that's fascinating. I, there's a book by a theologian named Matthew Levering, and um, he was asking the exact same question I was. He teaches at a seminary in Chicago, just very quickly. And we we co- we wrote reviews of each other's book in the upcoming upcoming U.S. Catholic Historian. So hmm. um, he wrote about ten pages on my book. I wrote about ten pages on his book, and we disagree on a lot. Let me just say that out there. But he has a, an amazing chapter on existentialism that blows my hmm. psychology chapter out of the water. And <laughs> he found like stuff about Heidegger, Jaspers, um, and all these moral theologians reading all this existentialism to form their ideas of conscience. I I hinted that a little bit, but. Um, that is that that is all an attempt to like deal with modernity, but also maintain tradition. And I think the evangelical the, sort of how far do you fold yourself into modernity with that? How do you cross between the two? How do you take resources from both sides, you know, while you maintain your identity? Or do, how do you much do you fold yourself into culture? That's a huge perennial Christian debate. They were they were, they were really and still really are kind of enamored with psychology and uh, psychological frameworks became huge in the 1670s in a way they weren't before. But it still maintained this medieval tradition of following conscience. That's kind yeah, of what I try yeah. to argue. Yeah, yeah, maybe that. Yeah, and that, that's so interesting. The sort of repeated return to Aquinas as um, sort of a source of this sort of um, roots you in a much different way than a lot of the evangelical um, debates. Mm. I mean, many of them would root themselves in the reformers or something. But I think of a really good book recent. I mean, it's not so recent anymore. But Molly Worthen's Apostles of Reason. Yeah. I guess it's almost ten years old now. But um, where this is sort of the core question she has is this which he calls attention between the head and the heart um, in yeah. American evangelicalism. But she has a whole chapter on um, how evangelicals embrace sociology for evangelism and how this was basically, at least for a time, uncritically adopted by um, by evangelical missiologists and uh, and really led to you know the church growth movement and other things that really expanded evangelicalism. And it was only sort of a generation later that there was um, a significant critique of a lot of the assumptions behind that. And some of them were ab- around the sociology, some of them were around the theological assumptions. But um, it, these are interesting tensions that I've, probably I would guess every American Christian tradition um, goes through. And I, you know, yeah. the, the question is, how significant are the tensions and, uh, yeah. and, and, uh, and, and who wins, I guess, um, in deciding in this those case, things. It was significant enough in 1993 that John Paul II spent like mm. six or seven pages in an encyclical ripping up the psychological tradition. Yeah. He's yeah. like, this is a bad idea. Um, it's wrong. You can't do it. He also didn't like the Aquinas roots either. So he's trying to struggle to find something new, but he, he's like the psychological understanding of the human conscience is wrong. He says it. Um, and goes on for many pages about why it's wrong. So, yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Very interesting. Well, Peter, I've really enjoyed talking about um, the the insides and outsides of your thinking on this. Um, I did want to ask, you know, you're a teacher at University of Notre Dame, and you teach a lot on modern Catholic history, American Catholicism. Where does the individual conscience um, come up in your teaching? And, and how do you teach it? And I guess a 
adding on to that, do you notice any assumptions that your students uh, mm. bring into the classroom about this that mm. you you either um, anticipate or try to correct or um, yeah. uh, uh, get them on the right track on thinking about individual conscience? Yeah, I teach a class here called um, the Vietnam War and American Catholics. Uh, so that the, my research is like pretty much part, a major part of that class in terms of how I think. Um, and so I have two colleagues, Kathy Cummings and Tom Tweed, who cover a lot of religion mm -hmm. here. So that's like my, my little niche. Um, but we have a lot of conversations and it permeates all my classes. But I really kind of like <clears throat> I don't think students are aware of just how intensely Catholics were committed to the anti-war movement mm. and how central Catholicism was to the anti-war movement. Uh, Dan Berrigan. Uh, the Catholic Peace Fellowship, all of those things, um, but also this really robust commitment to individual conscience rights um, is one thing that I think is kind of shocking. We know that Catholics um, like weren't really down with Vietnam, but what's shocking is like how they were willing to abandon their like anti-communism uh, to then like go for a more individualistic sort of interpretation of citizenship, right? Mm. So that in that class, that's kind of how I teach that, and I talk a lot about um, not just you know I talk about Catholics who immolated um, is like one really extreme side. Uh, but other Catholics who like just wouldn't show up to draft board meetings, um, Catholic students who are like 19 or 20 who are like filing this paperwork. I signed some of the primary source paperwork where a, a guy at Fordham is like my Jesuit professor told me to follow my conscience on this matter. And then like dug up a writing, an article by several other Jesuits where they write about conscience and feeds it to his New York City draft board. Um, but Catholics were these really great patriots, these really great anti-communists. And now they're like now these people who are fighting for individual rights. And so that huge shift. Um, across like the anti-communism moment is important um, in, in that course that I talk about a lot about. So, and I don't, I don't think students really see that coming. Um, we also then talk about the contraception debate and mm -hmm. people are just kind of opposed, like people think it's impossible for the church to tell people what to think, but the church did think it, it still does. And, but it was telling people how to think. And um, I just don't think that like the, basically the intensity of that era still shapes who we are now. So I have to try to get that point across as much as possible. Um, yeah. And I think, I don't know. I wonder I wonder what their basic literacy on the conscience argument would be today as compared to like 60s or 70s, you know, because uh, we're just we, we don't memorize as many clauses the way we used to about like Aquinas. And like so the, the education itself has changed. That's a really interesting question. Yeah. Um, mostly they look at my book cover and think it's a strange title and want to know like what I'm saying. Um, so we do talk about it. Um, but yeah. Yeah. You know, as you were talking about the anti-war movement, it, and it, I'm sitting here in Madison. I went to UW. There's a storied sort of um, history of that period. And it's largely centered on the university, right? And and it's it puts the sort of student body, not necessarily a religious, a religiously defined body, but much more generationally defined as the arbiter or sort of the vanguard of anti-war protesting. Um, and I wonder, do you think so? I, th there's been a lot of conversation about the civil rights movement and how we need to understand that in large, largely religious terms. At least that needs to be a major part of our dimension. I think of you know, um, uh, well, a number of books, uh, Kevin Schultz and uh, uh, Dave Chappelle and others who yeah. who write about that. Um, do you do you get the sense that that needs to? And I mean, I I'm I'm sort of asking a leading mm -hmm. question, but should we? How should we understand religion in the Vietnam War? That this is yeah. should we understand it similar to religion and civil rights, or yeah. are those not exactly the same? It's a great question. It's a great question. I mean, and I should say anti-war religion and the yeah. anti-war movement. Um, yeah. yeah. In the class I teach on the '60s, I pursue almost like a totally secular interpretation of the war, anti-war mm -hmm. movement. Um, you know, I talk about the draft riots at UW. 
and I talk about Columbia and I talk about Berkeley and I talk about other things. So I think you can tell a totally secular narrative of like resistance, uh, you, the rising youth culture, things of that nature. Um, a historian I know named Stephen Brady, who's at George Washington University, is writing a book about Vietnam War and Catholics, which is, I think, going to be huge. Um, mm. Seth Jacobs has also written about this uh, with his book on on Catholics uh, and the Vietnam War um, and Tom Dooley and things of that nature. I don't know. I mean, on one level, I think Bob Orsi has also referred to this as well. Like the burning of draft cards connects to like rituals in Catholic life, mm. um, anti-war protest masses, things of that nature. Um the list and and so the infusion of religion into that, I think it's a huge part of it. And for me, it was fundamentally like a a, a theological argument circulating on the pa the state's paperwork about evading the state's authority, which was pursued mostly by priests who are supposed to be agents of authority, but who are mm -hmm. undermining state authority constantly by telling eighteen to twenty two year olds to follow their conscience rather than the draft law, right? And also Catholic priests who are filing things in the Supreme Court, basically saying no. You can't, we have to be selective conscious objectors because, in fact, like we have this teaching on conscience. So I think that's a huge thing. Selective conscious objection is definitely a, a religious category for me. This idea that like some wars are just and some are not just. So we have to select which ones we can and cannot, which is different from the Mennonite position or different from a position of total right. obedience. But that middle position, I think, is deeply informed by theology. And um, Ron Stahl has also written really persuasively about this, how the Jewish influences is, is Jew, you know, Jew, Jewish intellectuals were also influential and some Protestants and carving out this category. So I'm of two minds. I think if you, I don't know, America is a weirdly religious, super religious place and a weirdly super secular place. I don't know. I don't understand that. And I think, I think that too about the civil rights movement as well. Um, yes, and I think yeah. somehow like maybe there's not an overarching narrative, but maybe there's a way to like say they're two, they're, they're two phenomena that feed off each other. Yeah. And maybe the, yeah. And maybe the move is to say, you can't really tell the whole story unless both are there. So sort of over, um, overemphasizing sort of a, a strictly religious history of the civil rights movement would miss a lot. Same if you did a strictly non-religious um, history. And maybe, I mean, I would say that's probably, um, it's a win at least for people like us who like to write about religion and these things, because it at least yeah. means there's a seat at the table um, totally. when it comes to that. Um, okay, well, last question, uh, Pete. Um, we at Upper House, um, and particularly at the Upwards podcast, um, we have a largely Christian audience. Uh, that's not, it's not exclusively, but um, many people are uh, thinking through a, a conversation like this from a Christian perspective. And of course, you've published your book with University of Chicago. That's um, not a Christian press, and it's obviously not the in only intended audience, though I'm sure they love anyone uh, picking up the book. But is there anything in particular you're hoping Christians take away from your book or your broader thinking about the individual conscience um, that they can sort of uh, mull over um, after this conversation? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, for me, I think maybe two things. One, as Christians, we are, I think we have to reckon realistically with the fact that we are individual minds in an individual body, and somehow we have to connect ourselves to the larger traditions. Whether it's through communal work or community life or through a larger, broader set of transcendent rules like the natural law. Um, but I think reckoning seriously with our subjectivities and our subjective angles of life is really significant. And I think that's also faith affirming rather than faith denying. Um, and so my book is a reckoning, trying to trying to connect this, the sense like there are laws that the state makes, there are laws that the church makes, yet we live in these individual lives, these individual worlds. 
And theology is trying to figure out its way around both things at once, which I think harkens back to our conversation about the initially contested nature of our faith. Hmm. And that's, I think that's it too, is like to embrace the fact that this is a set of tensions. Um, it's a, an ongoing dialogue. There's no stable center to a debate like conscience. Um, but I think there is a, like a deep, deep meaning, deep and responsible way to like search for truth as well as a Christian. That's significant. And the other thing I would say too is like, for me, it's about, I think being at Notre Dame, um, uh, being who I am is about like, I love the secular intellectual tradition that we were talked about before, um, like Dewey and, and, um, John Locke, uh, and, uh, like John Rawls. And I, and, and I think that's really significant. I think there's for, for me, for a Christian, it's about going back and forth between Catholic social teaching and Catholic intellectual life and the secular tradition and kind of taking things back and forth between both camps. Hmm. Um, and I see kind of us intellectual history as a field that does this really interestingly. So, um, as a Christian, I think we have to, I, I would say like, take modernity seriously and read widely and go back and forth between both traditions while trying to hold on to who you are. Um, if that's what gives your life and your world meaning. Cause for me, the church is like, I, I and I think the, this is the last thing I'll say is like, I started doing American Catholic history. This goes back to your first question, partially because I wanted to remain close to the church. I want to remain in dialogue with it. Um, I wanted to sit next to it in my mind. Um, it's also like being a Catholic university is like being next to its, its rhythms, its institutional life, its arguments, its people. So I saw doing Catholic intellectual history and this project too is a way to like be part of this discourse and a way to part of like be in my church and like to be. So I, I guess the last thing is like, don't be afraid to take on intense intellectual issues because you can remain and like actually grow deeper in your faith. And I think to me, it's like doing Catholic history allows me to re remain connected and grow in faith in the church. And that was for me, that's a key thing about doing scholarship. It's not for a lot of a lot of people like want to do other things. And I, I also accept that as like as part of modernity. Um, but for me, like this is part of what it means to grow as a Christian is like really engage your intellectual tradition vigorously um, and also to like make to think about it historically and all of its tensions. So, yeah, that's great. Thanks, Pete. And I what I heard you say is something that uh, every good scholar should have. But uh, I think, you know, reading your book, thinking about conscience, just uh, the virtue or the the need to be hum humble and humility when we come to these freighted topics, understanding the complexity, the scope, the history um, really will instill that humility. So if nothing else, you've given uh, our listeners and reader and readers of your book um, a sense of just, um, you might have thought you knew what you were, what conscience was, and you probably only know the surface uh, of it. And, and it, it probably behooves each of us to sort of um, be humble about what we know and what we don't know, um, particularly in our faith communities, uh, yeah. as we debate these things, and it can get really heated. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, thanks, Pete. Thanks for Thank your you. time today and uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. It means so much to, to talk about the book and really it means a lot to talk to you about it. Someone whose work I really have admired over the years. So thank you. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.